You may recall earlier this season when I told you about an upcoming guest, we were going to hear from a man who has been described as the globetrotting salesman-in-chief for Dutch expertise on rising water and climate change by none other than the New York Times. I also told you that he's from a country that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation says has a thousand-year head start in learning how to manage water. This country has one of the most sophisticated anti-flood systems in the world. And then I got you on the hook a bit. I asked if you wanted to know what country that is, but that I would only tell you if you kept listening to the show. Finally, that time has come. Should I tell you now, or should I make you wait a bit more? Yeah, I'm going to make you wait. All will be revealed in this episode when this globetrotting water expert joins us. He's been having a crazy few months. Dealing with the global worries over coronavirus has made his packed travel schedule even more complicated. But we've finally been able to nail down a time to talk. That time is now. Let's get into it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's 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 let's, 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 let's talk, 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 talk 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 about, 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 about water. 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 water 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 water. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Let's Talk About Water, a podcast by the Global Institute for Water Security and the Walrus Lab. Excellent music aside, it's time to find out which country has been said to be in the best position to talk about extreme water. Drum roll. It's the Netherlands. The best man to talk to to ask why is Hank Ovink. He's the country's first ever special envoy for international water affairs. He also holds the title of Sherpa for the UN's high-level panel on water. He hails from Rotterdam, although on any given day, it's hard to say where he is, except for today, where we've reached him in Stockholm, Sweden. Hello, Hank. Hey, Jay. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for taking time to chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it too. Thanks so much for making time to talk about water, because your show, Let's Talk About Water, hits the nail on the head. We need to talk about water much more. Yeah. Well, then, the well then talk about water we shall. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, you have um, uh, an unusual job and job title, which I've just mentioned. But before we get to that, can you explain to our audience what's the deal with, you know, for those in our audience that have never looked at a map, can you explain to our audience what's the deal with the Netherlands and water? Why has your country had to develop such deep expertise in hydrology and hydraulics and water management? Well, there is uh, several reasons. One, the Netherlands is a delta, which is a place where rivers end up into the sea or the ocean. And deltas are amazing places because soil is great you can grow any crop it's very diverse uh water is everywhere it's fresh it's of good quality uh they're places of high dynamics economically because from the old days these are the places where you could sail the world which is what we did so on in the in the in the context of uh quality of place and space and access and uh, accessibility uh great 
So this is what happens then if you start to invest there. All of a sudden, you also discover that water can be a threat with floods and that when you pollute the water with your industry, you're in trouble. Living and working in such a delta immediately puts you at the forefront of, oh, I have to manage this real, real carefully. If I'm with a million or now with 70 million people or in some deltas with 100 million of people, when you come together in, in a place that is this vulnerable with that many of opportunities, water is front and center in everything. And living there makes you understand that complexity and see it as an opportunity and an asset. And this is, I think, where the Dutch came in a thousand years ago is that they said, ah, okay, if water is so critically important, then we have to organize ourselves around it. So it didn't start with engineering. It didn't start with cool designs or projects. It really started with People coming together saying, okay, let's sit around the table, the farmer, the mayor, the decision maker, the investor, the municipality, the whoever, what, and say, we have to do this together. We're in this together, so we better do this together. So water governance, our way of collaboration, our culture of living with water, I think is our biggest asset. Yeah, so that's amazing, Hank. I mean, uh, what you just described is a real a real model for um, for collaboration, right? I mean, it makes sense. It makes after you've explained it, it makes tremendous sense, uh, especially since your country has organized itself uh, around water and around the delta. That you would have the position that you do, that that such a position exists. Um, can you talk about your current position and and sort of talk about your responsibilities? Yeah. I think five years ago, the then uh, Dutch cabinet, um, there was this idea in prepping for the sustainable development goals and working around the world that water is such a cross-cutting issue. It's connected to health, to education, to equality, to gender, to youth, to security, to biodiversity, to food, and so forth. Eh? Uh, the cabinet said to me, uh, I, First, they said it to themselves, if we want to help the world progress this water issue from policy and politics and finance and projects and collaborations and governance and capacity, then we have to become a little bit more active there. So they asked me to uh, become their first envoy on water to help raise awareness, build that understanding and capacity, help uh, uh, build coalitions, public and private, NGOs, indigenous, marginalized across the globe, and look for solutions that are innovative, that help prepare the world better instead of that we respond to the disasters that are so devastating. So that's where this role came from. And when I started this, I started to also work with our international partners, and we then we immediately also set up a high-level panel on water, while at the same time I found myself working with a a group of school children, age eight in Chile or uh, university in Bangladesh. So it's not high level alone. It's not finding yourself in the basement of the UN for two days alone. It's also really being on the ground, getting wet or really dry feet uh, uh, and finding solutions for the, the most dire problems the world is facing. Well, that's, that's really amazing. So uh, a couple of uh, things I want to say. First, uh, I want to go to the uh, Canadian government and suggest that um, I fill a similar position for the Canadian gov government because it sounds incredibly awesome. 
so you are uh, uh, an incredibly fortunate person to uh, to have that to have that position. It must be a tremendous amount of fun. Yes, yeah, it is a tremendous amount of fun. The challenging part is, of course, that it goes by default, eh? often by default in despair. It's not by success that we increase our understanding. It's by you know the disasters yes, and things are falling apart. So right. we as humankind have the tendency to look away unless really things explode in our faces. And only then are we capable of stepping up and say, oh, yeah, something is really wrong. Let's clean up the mess and perhaps do a little better. And I think this is where I find my role in the partnership around the world most challenging is that we're always too late. Uh, uh, we clean up the mess. People really die. We really lose uh, 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 our infrastructure, houses or or, or, or families. Uh, before we are, have the tendency to uh, pick up speed. And if you now look in the context of the, the Sustainable Development Goals uh, and uh, the Paris Agreement, um, even that despair and default is not enough for the world to pick up speed. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm deadly committed to, to what I'm doing. I, I, I do this 24-7. I really think it's amazing and rewarding. While challenging, but that's uh, ex exactly why we use that. I know, you know, it's um, uh, there's a there's a a social behavioral side to all of this that I find really interesting as an academic, but also really compelling because you know we need to be proactive and not reactive on this on this stuff. Uh, you travel around the world, you work with a lot of different communities and a lot of different governments, and there must be times when you are wondering like why people don't do the obvious thing. And you find yourself in that situation where you're frustrated that uh, you know, it's quite clear, for example, that a certain type of flood protection might be needed or that there's a lack of, say, you know, predictive tools or, or whatever. It's so, uh, you know, so clear to you, but not clear to the, the stakeholder that you're working with. Do you find yourself in that position much? Yeah, I think the, um, the, the uh, yes, <laughs> that is the shortest answer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and but not always. Eh? I think this is. Um, I must say, even with these disasters happen, um, what often comes first is a band-aid approach. Uh, we uh, try to use whatever we have, existing approaches, existing technology, existing finance, and existing policies. That is. Not to say it's not the same as denial, but in a way it is denial because the challenge is bigger. Uh, but what you see happening, uh, you uh, you have this, you have the impact of a, uh, an extreme event, and then we say, okay, let's clean up the mess so nobody notices. Uh, that's a little bit the situation because you can't keep the mess, but that you look at the future, uh, really uh, prospect to the best analysis from a systems point of view, and say, okay. But if I look ahead, these would be the right investments. Uh, and we, we call them resiliency investments or uh, uh, in, in more innovative, uh, uh, transfor transformative investment where you say, okay, if we do this, then we use the disaster as a way to leapfrog uh, to a better state. Uh, and I think that is the biggest challenge because that demands a type of leadership 
not from the position of leaders, but from all a community that is vulnerable, an investor that puts in skin in the game, a government, uh, uh, but also the researchers, the advisors, the engineers, the designers that say, uh, this is not about replicating what we know, this is about reinventing ourselves. And that means also uh, that people have to admit and organizations and experts have to admit that they can't do it easily, huh? that they can't do it uh, you know, from from um, uh, from the cuff. Yeah, I think that's why we right, say it. Eh? Right. Yeah, it's a major challenge. So um, let me. Uh, um, we're just going to pause for a minute. Our producer hit the streets to ask, "What's the greatest inconvenience you've ever faced when it comes to water?" So producer Chelsea Laskowski here. I am patrolling the campus in Saskatoon looking for some university students who are willing to answer some questions. So here we go. Hi, excuse me. Do you have a moment to talk? Um, I have kind of a weird question for you. Nothing? Like, can I actually record this? Or? <laughs> oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. The greatest inconvenience that's ever happened to me with water is when the whole town, the water system just wasn't working or whatever, and they still kept us at school, so they had to bring in 20 like gallons of those water jugs and just leave them in the hallways for us, but they still made us attend school. We weren't allowed to go to the bathroom unless we like absolutely had to. <laughs> for how long? This was like, I swear, for two days. <laughs> yeah, okay, the, the store had to give them basically all of their water jugs, and then they made like the grade 12 boys go unload them from the truck and then line them up in the hallway. And then we had like a central location where like the elementary kids and the high school kids could meet up and then just like get water. And like, I swear, the elementary kids have never been so thirsty in their life because they were always like coming to make trips to like the new water cooler in the hallway. <laughs> so they're trying to be cool with the older kids. Absolutely. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm asking people the question, what's the greatest inconvenience you've ever faced when it comes to water? Uh, yeah, what is what is it for you? Um, could I say like when it rains, um, like if you don't have an umbrella, you're going to get wet. <laughs> um, when I was on a canoe trip about a year ago, uh, we were going down the lake and realized that we ran out of water on this hot day and we had to filter out the lake water and drink it from there. Uh, we had little filter bottles that we bought before we left just in case and yeah take a couple minutes to filter them out in the milk jugs but it tasted actually pretty good like <laughs> you couldn't tell it was lake water <laughs> and what about you what's the greatest inconvenience you've ever faced when it comes to water having like harsh water and it like being like really bad on like your hair and like making it like fray I really hate that I like having soft water <laughs> when I lived in the Arctic and the water truck didn't come and you have no water and it's a storm and you don't have any water for many days your storm stuck so you don't have water for four or five days and so you've got to melt some snow and boil up water and you've got a very finite amount of water and you know where every drop's going. The greatest inconvenience I've ever had when it comes to water is where uh, my washing machine broke and it leaked uh, a whole bunch of water into my downstairs neighbor's kitchen and it started running out of their light fixture and they came and knocked on my door, told me that I was wrecking their kitchen and that's actually the first time I ever met them too. <laughs> yeah, they actually helped me which was really nice of them so... <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. So 
you know, we've been talking about, say, response to disasters like flooding, which are catastrophic events and tend to really mobilize people. And I think uh, people and communities and governments are, are motivated to do something, right? But with the more slow creeping uh, impacts, uh, I mean, relative to a flood, uh, of climate change and population growth, um, you know, it's much more insidious. There's, there, it's, um, you know, it just seems like it's more challenging. In one, the one case, you've got an event and government wants to respond and be seen to respond. In another case, you have something that's unfolding again. I mean, we know that climate change is happening quickly, but in a relative sense, uh, compared to a catastrophic event, it's unfolding slowly. And it, there must be, I mean, are you, so my question really is, are you finding that there's a, a different time scale of response by governments? Um, yes and no. Um, I think, there is a real difference where we, when you when you think about climate change, where we are in the world, uh, because uh, the suffering is already happening. Climate change is not something of tomorrow. It, the impact of climate change are hitting communities around the world already today, uh, with too much water or too little or pollution uh, that is in, increased and biodiversity loss that is increased or exacerbated by climate change. So. Um, it's not abstract anymore. Eh? Uh, you know, decades ago we could think, you know, climate change is something that will come to us. How can we prepare? It is here. Uh, climate change hits more progressed and less progressed situations also uh, differently. So if you look at the UK with floods and uh, coastlines disappearing, the UK is in a different place than in Bangladesh, where marginalized communities have to run for their lives on a frequent basis, or small island and development states, where it's not only sea level rise in these massive storms, it's also that salt intrusion, uh, sea water intrusion is actually uh, making their aquifers uh, undrinkable. Uh, so they now ship in loads of fresh water that comes in plastic bottles and increasing actually a carbon footprint that they want to fight against. So. Um, uh, it really depends where you are in the world, how governments try to uh, uh, step up. Um, I want to. I want to ask you. It's such a cool job. How did it happen? What was your career trajectory? What were you doing before uh, you became the special envoy? So right before, when I was asked to start to do this. Um, uh, I worked uh, in the United States uh, for uh, President Obama's uh, Hurricane Sandy Task Force. Uh, 2012, in October, uh, Hurricane Sandy hit the New York region. And uh, when President Obama entered office, uh, 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 for, he said, no Katrina on my watch, uh, meaning that I want a federal, he in, in the eye, want a federal government that is prepared when disasters hit and that we know what to do. So when Sandy hit, who got reelected the week after Hurricane Sandy, uh, um, he uh, uh, drafted or his team drafted this presidential executive order calling for uh, a presidential Hurricane Sandy task force uh, with 23 federal agencies plus uh, representatives uh, from the states that were hit from state, local and in indigenous uh, uh, groups. So that meant that 
which is of like a novel like a novelty in the US, it was a very collaborative way. So bringing all agencies together instead of a siloed approach. Uh, then he rallied up the funding with Congress, uh, took him a bit because Congress became predominantly Republican, but he managed to overcome that because Hurricane Sandy didn't make a difference between the, the Democrats or the Republicans in the New York region. So we had the funding, we had six months, Congress gave us six months to deliver uh, uh, action plan, you could say a report on how we could help rebuild uh, the New York region post Hurricane Sandy. And my role in the task force, when I was asked to join the task force by the, the then chair of the task force was really to look at how do we spend our infrastructure investment really resilient, uh, so not fragmented, not as a band-aid approach, but really looking at how you do this in a resilient way. And second, how can we set up an innovative practice uh, where we can spur innovative action to help this region leapfrog to a real better state of resiliency. Uh, and for that, I set up a competition called Rebuild by Design, gathering the world of experts, working with local communities and uh, challenging everyone in hundreds of organizations and coalitions to develop those transformative projects that could be replicated and scaled and, uh, and be drivers for change. So that was what I was doing before becoming uh, an envoy. And before that, you would say I was assistant secretary for water and planning. We brought in the Netherlands the water and the planning department together, which I always thought was a very smart way of doing the the last government took that apart again so you know our politicians and bureaucracy also sometimes uh, uh, take a different turn you you could say uh, but i uh, headed that department um, and uh, i worked as a planning director in the netherlands worked for an engineering group worked at universities across i still uh, do some research at some of the universities in the world um, and also have a background in uh, arts, mathematics, uh, and public policy and engineering. So well, there's a, a little bit of everything. That's, yeah, that's yeah. that's fascinating. So you so therefore yeah. you're able to take a creative approach to solving some of these yeah. really complex problems. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So um, so you know I used to live in Texas and um, I didn't pay too much attention to the tornadoes when I uh, when we first moved there. And then just like, you know, the mother of all tornadoes came blowing through town and impacted so many people that we knew. And from then on, uh, we were really focused on tornado preparedness and we had an action plan and we knew what we'd do with the kids and we knew what we would do with the house or if we were on the road. So, you know, we had it down. How does this, and you're, I'm just wondering about your experience with Hurricane Sandy. When you hear about uh, hurricanes hitting land now, has this impacted the way you think about it? Are you more on edge or, you know, what's your response today? No, and I think this is the logical, what you say, the moment it hits us, we become aware. Um, but I must say, um, uh, I, I work with different groups around the world and one of one of the people I work with is Kadir von Lohuizen. He's a documentary photographer, and he does amazing work. Um, and one of it, the projects he did a couple of years ago uh, was showcased actually at the Oceans Conference in New York in 2017. It's, and it was a 
photo documentary series, and it was called Where Will We Go? And with his photos, he chased the impacts of climate change across the world, uh, in the US, small island, the development states, and so forth. His second project that was broadcasted on television and in a museum uh, this winter and fall uh, was again that he went with his camera uh, to all these places uh, where climate change is hitting us now. And he was in Florida the day after Michael, Hurricane Michael hit uh, in the, uh, the panhandle. Uh, uh, so Mexico Beach, I think, uh, was the, the, the town or city that was hit front and center. And he walks around town and there's this house on the sidewalk. And, you know, you see the house was not supposed to be there. It, probably before Michael, it was not there. And there are these people and he starts to talk to this man and the man, he asked the man, this is your house. Yes. Th this is not where it's supposed to be. No, it was around the corner. So they walk around the corner for a couple of minutes and they found where the house was standing just when Michael hit. And Kadir asked the man, so, so like in the Netherlands, we protect ourselves for these things. And the man answers, he says, no, we can't. You know, this is what happens when the disaster happens. Uh, we'll pick up the pieces and rebuild. So no learning. So the, the, this acceptance of, yes, disasters happen. Yes, things fall apart. Yes, we can't prepare. If we have to move, we will move. That's interesting because that means that uh, if that is part of our human uh, response to these disasters, we will never get to a state of resiliency because then we accept that things are falling apart. And I think this is the challenge. One, we become better after disasters. But on the other, there is also this, this part of the world that says, no, we don't. Uh, we can't. Uh, this is what it is. It is, some people say, God's will, or this is where we are as a human. human so acceptance is uh, the nail to our coffin, uh, I would say, in the context of climate and, uh, and disaster. Yeah, and it really brings into question the whole idea of managed retreat. And, and you know, we're, start, right. we're starting to see this. I mean, it sounds like a great idea, uh, but it's incredi incredibly expensive. And some people just don't want to do it. No, no. Um, uh, so what have you been working on recently? So uh, one of the things I'm very uh, proud of and happy, so there are a couple of things, but let's talk about one in the context of where we're talking about now. So I set up a program called Water as Leverage, as the leverage for sustainable development and climate action. Uh, we started in Asia. I, I, I got funding from partners, including the Dutch government. We, I, we did a full-scale research in Asia, identifying 30-plus cities where we could start. We picked three, Chennai in India, Kulna in Bangladesh, and Samang in Indonesia. And now we have over 20 projects. After, after one and a half years' work, we have over 20 projects, and we start with the first one this year of implementation. We said, okay, only if we forget our current principles, our current way of allocating money, our current uh, policies on how to deal with it. But if we really look ahead to that future, will we be able to identify those interventions that are catalytic? And we managed to identify more than 20 and even the financial people because they are involved from the beginning, 
and now enthusiastic, although those projects don't fall within their programs, their existing programs, they are ready to fund. So I think that is uh, uh, seeing that it is possible to get a world that is very fragmented, uh, uh, organized together uh, around where vulnerability is biggest and climate change is hitting hardest, uh, is very, very encouraging. It's not easy. It's a, it's a, it's a very demanding way on how you uh, drive a program, but I, I'm, I'm really uh, encouraged uh, also by the uh, optimism it creates working in these communities. You know, we shy away from cynicism, which is nice. There is a uh, build up belief and there's a partnership that is strong. And I think that is really encouraging. I, I agree, Hank. I think what you've uh, just explained to me uh, personally gives me great hope and, and tremendous optimism. Uh, so that is just some impressive work that you're doing. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Hank Ovink is the Netherlands Special Envoy for International Water Affairs. He also holds the title of Sherpa for the UN's High Level Panel on Water. He joins us over Skype from Stockholm, Sweden. Thanks very much, Hank. Thanks, Jay, for taking the time. We need to talk about water. We, uh, we absolutely do. And I hope that we can <laughs> keep talking about it. Thanks so much, Hank. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Since this is the last episode of the season, we wanted to take a little trip down memory lane. So my producer has put together a supercut of some of the highlights from this season. Hold on to your hats, everybody. This is a story about fish. Today I'm in Tel Aviv. Something near and dear to me. Groundwater. We are using it at a rate that is dangerous. Biological productivity of the Delta has collapsed. We need to do something. The environment, of course, knows no borders. The popular narrative, of course, about Israel is that it's a beacon of hope. The Jordan River is really an environmental disaster. We're allowing corporate America to access this water, bottle it up, and sell it back to us. I think it's a problem. I think it's a huge problem. And there are no limits on how much water can be taken out of the ground. Fish are not that different from humans. Okay, so I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read a bunch of stuff. Feeling good. Let's capture it before I lose it. Okay. <laughs> you gonna do the air guitar again? No, that's just a one. That's a one-off. Yeah, it's just a. That's just a one-off. <laughs> Hang on, I'm gonna turn the keyboard on. Right. It happens to be right in front of me, and I couldn't resist. You're listening to Let's Talk About Water. Listening to Let's Talk About Water. And again, everybody, this is episode 10. It's the last of season one of Let's Talk About Water, a podcast dedicated to the future of water and why you should care. It's a collaboration between the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan and the Walrus Lab. This season was an experiment in podcasting for all of us. I've been a guest on plenty of podcasts before, but hosting, that was all new stuff to me. Our team has learned a lot this season, and we're ready to apply all of that and create a season two. We're gonna fiddle with the format behind the scenes, try to get even more creative, and spend some time out of the studio and in new environments. When is it going to launch? We don't know yet, but that is the beauty of podcasting. If you subscribe to the podcast or to our RSS feed or follow our Facebook and Twitter pages, 
We'll make sure to break out the trumpet fanfare to announce what's happening and when it's happening and when season two starts. I'd like to thank the people involved in season one of Let's Talk About Water. That includes each and every guest we had on and everyone who helped us get them onto the show. And our behind the scenes team, Mark Ferguson, Chelsea Laskowski, Jesse Widow, Morgan Broughton, and down here in the basement of the College of Education, spinning the knobs and making it all happen in the studio, Wayne Giesbrecht. Thanks very much, everybody. It was a lot of fun.